Hello, and welcome to The Plants We Eat, a show where we talk about all kinds of different plants that you know, we use for food, right? That's right. All right. I'm, my name is Jeff Gilman, and with me is... Cindy Proctor. And today, <laughs> you know, something, Cindy, today is pretty special because this is our 50th episode. That's amazing. Doesn't seem like it at all. It I've had a lot of fun. And there are so many more plants we have absolutely, to do. Absolutely. But for our 50th episode, we want to do something special. And Duke Lehman gave us the opportunity to do that. I want to read Duke's uh, email to us. It's pretty short. It won't take too long. Thank you and Cindy for the awesome podcast. I was listening to your episode on apples and you had mentioned GMOs. I believe that would make a great episode. There is a lot of misinformation on the subject and a scholarly discussion would bring some much needed clarification. Are all GMOs bad? I don't believe so. However, I don't want to eat a plant that has been designed to have chemicals such as Roundup dumped on them either. On the other hand, making a plant more resistant to pest or producing a better flavor or yield is a good thing. I would love to hear your views on the subject. Keep up the great work, Duke Lehman. Duke, that was a great letter, and Cindy and I have been talking about that for some time, and we decided that we'd like to do it for our 50th episode, so... Off we go. And what a better person than you to talk about it, because it's, you've done quite a bit of research on it. I think it's actually important that people understand what kind of work I, I have done. Okay. So first of all, I am not a gene jumper or a gene jockey. Some people, you know, I'm going to say both positive things and negative things about GMOs. Some people will think, uh, you must be paid for by Monsanto or some other company. I want to be very straightforward in that I've received a very small amount of funding, about $5,000 once, from a company that does do some genetic engineering. Other than that, I've received no money that I know of from a company that does any genetic engineering. And in terms of my total grants and money that I've received for work, $5,000, very, very small. But wasn't that years ago in your research? That was about 20 years ago. Oh, okay. But I still think it's important to be straightforward. Okay. I've known many people who have done work on gene manipulation. I myself have not done work on gene manipulation. As an undergraduate, I did do a little bit of work with actually mitochondrial DNA. But it's been forever since I've done that kind of work. And the techniques are just so vastly different now. The techniques are incredibly different. The basics still apply, but the, the overall techniques are different. Um, again, so I certainly have colleagues who still do this kind of work. I am up on it, relatively speaking, but I certainly don't do it. And if you put me into a lab with all the stuff to do it, it would take me, I could eventually figure it out, but take me years to, to figure it all out. Well, I mean, my background's not near as extensive as yours, but I do follow the research, mm -hmm. you know, and try to uh, stay away from the naysayers that don't have any basis for their opinion. But I also read theirs too, because I want to understand the concern that the public has, or anyone has, uh, scientists as well. But I, I am very science-minded, and I, and I want to know the facts based on experimentation. Well, let me ask you this right away. I'm going to give you my opinion next, but I want to ask your opinion. If I say, Cindy, are you pro-GMO? What, what do you say to that? <laughs> That's a difficult yes or no question. I've uh, been asked that. Uh, question. Yeah, you know, I haven't been. And so okay. this is the first time you're asking me this. Ask a different one, like, would I buy a GMO product? Sure, I Absol can do that. Absolutely. So you would buy a GMO product? I absolutely product. would. Okay. You know, am I for it? You know, well, I think there's with some limitations, you know, okay. and some concerns, of course, you know, just like anything. But I would not have a problem whatsoever buying a GMO product, which you can't avoid, by the way. Let's just say it's extremely difficult okay. to avoid. You could, but man, you'd have to go to such an incredible It'd be effort. a part-time job. Yeah, it would be a part-time <laughs> job. And I'm happy to answer the, the very question that I asked, am I pro-GMO? 
I'm not pro or anti. I believe that, I probably should have said from the beginning, GMO means genetically modified organism. And you might see GE. Yes. Gene- genetically engineered. Yes. Yes. I believe that genetic engineering, genetic modification, I believe that is a tool, just like a hammer. Hammer is generally used for good, but you can always have an accident and smash your finger. Or in a worst case scenario, it can actually be used for evil. You know, like Maxwell's silver hammer, which came down on somebody's head. That's a strange you, you, analogy, but it's you a know good, that it's reference, not a bad right? one. Yes, okay. but it's not a bad one. It's, a, it's, it's not an a bad old, one. It's an old Beatles song, <laughs> in case you were wondering. For some of you, you got to look up this song from the Beatles. It was a, it was, well, it was an interesting song anyway. Genetically modified foods, genetically engineered products have been around for just much longer than most people think they have. I actually want to start with kind of a weird one. Have you ever heard of uh, Renin or Rennet? No. Do you know? Okay. Well, when you eat cheese, cheese is, of course, curdled milk. Now, milk is curdled by a, a certain enzyme that actually comes from a calf's stomach. And if you want cheese produced the, I'll say the natural way, you butcher a calf, you take the stomach, and the enzymes from it will curdle your milk and give you your cheese. And for those of you who couldn't see Cindy, which I guess is pretty much everybody out there, she just made a gagging, <laughs> gagging face. And, and it, is kind of, it is kind of nauseating. And in fact, there are some vegetarians who actually will not eat cheese because of the use of the calf's stomach. Well, to make more uniform cheese and to avoid the use of calves, the first food product, the first genetically modified food product was actually rennet. You would actually take the genes to form this enzyme, put it into essentially bacteria, and allow it to produce this rennet, and then you'd have a genetically engineered rennet. That can be applied to the process of making cheese, or, you know, to... Exactly. Here we are. You you got it. You got it. So approximately, and you'll find numbers higher, you'll find numbers lower, but approximately 90% of the cheese made in the United States today is made by using this genetically modified uh, process. And I'd have to say, I like that example. Like, I'm okay with, totally okay with that. It's a, it's a good one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And what people don't realize, eight years before that, we actually had insulin produced through genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. Most of our insulin today is produced through genetic engineering. So if you've got diabetes and you're using insulin injections, that's from, again, genetic modifications. What you usually think of when you think of genetically modified crops are things like corn and soybean, but it didn't actually start that way. The first product to come out is genetically modified. And I want to see if you remember this, the Flavor Saver tomato. Do you remember the Flavor Saver tomato? Yes. It was a tomato that tasted uh, better, tasted more like it was off the vine. Unfortunately, they picked kind of a lousy tomato to begin with. You pick the specific tomato that you want to modify, and then you modify. So they picked a specific type of tomato, and that specific type of tomato just didn't taste that good to begin with. So when they sold it, it didn't really do that well. It came out in 1994, and it was actually sold until 1997, so about three years, and it did not do very well. Around about 1996, we had BT corn and Roundup ready corn and soybean sugar beets. Actually, this didn't occur all at that time, but around that time. But that's the source of the controversy, though. It is the source of the Mm -hmm. controversy. So let me explain what these are really briefly, because BT and Roundup ready, BT being Bacillus thuringiensis. Which is a bacteria. Which is a bacteria. Mm -hmm. And Roundup ready really are what most of the crops that are genetically modified today are. BT corn is corn that has been modified to produce a protein which kills caterpillars. 
Caterpillars are a huge pest of many different crops, so putting the BT genes into these various crops really provides a lot of insect resistance. And this is where... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but there's just certain things that I ingest that other animals can't ingest. Mm -hmm. Example, chocolate. Yes. I can eat chocolate. It could kill dogs if they eat chocolate. Is the BT a similar example in that I'm not necessarily ingesting a poison like it has been uh, marketed as That such. is such a wonderful example. Okay. We've talked about chocolate with dogs in a previous podcast. Mm -hmm. We also talked about onions mm -hmm. and various animals. And it's exactly the same thing. It's more than even tolerance. We have essentially complete resistance against BT. It doesn't affect us. Caterpillars have a completely different digestive system. And because of that, they respond to this BT protein, and we simply don't respond at all. That's not to say that the BT protein is entirely good. There are some negatives, which honestly are worth mentioning. And let me start off with the one that concerns me the most, and that is the fact that BT is also an organic pesticide used by organic farmers and even by conventional farmers. It's a pesticide, again, from a bacteria that we can spray out when it coats a plant, caterpillars then cannot eat that plant. The BT actually, I didn't tell you how the BT kills the caterpillars. It's particularly nasty. It is. <laughs> it, it lyses their stomach. In other words, it puts a hole in their stomach and their guts spill out into, <laughs> in, into the rest of their body cavity. And uh, just nasty, nasty. What you'll end up happening, actually, is you'll have caterpillars hanging from the plant. They have this very distinctive way that they hang from a plant after they've ingested BT, which is just... It's really nasty. But it's not a pesticide we're applying to kill the same caterpillar. But I mean, that, that's uh, what, the pro. What do you pro. mean it's not a pesticide? Well, that's the pro, that, that it, it, we're not applying another product or a chemical-based product oh, on, I see. on the plant to rid right. the same it's caterpillar. Right. It's something that organic farmers can apply and that we can put into mm -hmm. a genetically modified crop. Here's the issue that I have with genetically modified crops that have BT in them. When we expose caterpillars to this much BT, they develop resistance. In fact, BT used to be an extremely effective pesticide against any number of caterpillars, and that number has actually been knocked back quite a bit because these various caterpillars have been exposed to so much BT through the genetically manipulated crops that you know, they're simply resistant to BT. And that includes not only the genetically modified crops, it of course also includes the sprays with BT. Mm -hmm. So we've lost, at least for some caterpillars, we've lost a valuable weapon. So that is one problem that I have with BT and the crops. It forces resistance to occur faster. You're right. And that would be my concern as well. But we can't ignore the benefit no, currently. You can't ignore the benefit. The other issue that I have and I have to say that uh, based on my rating, I do not consider this a major problem, but I will not deny that it is a problem. When you have BT in something like corn, uh, that corn becomes toxic not only to caterpillars that feed on the corn, it also becomes toxic to caterpillars that may not be feeding on the corn but get exposed to it anyway. And this has been shown to potentially have some effect on caterpillars such as monarchs. Now, the amount, the effect it has on them is highly debatable, and you'll find articles on both sides, but there's no doubt that it can have some effect. So that's, that's also a concern that we're hurting not only caterpillars that we really want to control, but also caterpillars that we'd 
rather preserved. Fair so, enough. So those are, the, those are the issues that I'm most concerned about with bacillus thuringiensis. The second way that crops are genetically modified, or I should say the big way that crops are genetically modified, is through herbicide resistance, specifically Roundup resistance. Although Roundup resistance actually isn't the only herbicide resistance, but it's 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 a, the main it's one. It's the main one. And Roundup is used. I, I think all of our listeners would know or should know to spray against undesired plants like weeds. Right. And the and the thing about Roundup is that it's broad spectrum. It kills almost everything. Mm -hmm. So if your corn is resistant to Roundup, then you can spray Roundup over the top, kill every single weed but not kill the corn. Right, and that that is huge because their plants have to compete with the weeds. It really reduces significantly amongst other things. You know, promotes all kinds of insect activity you don't want. And so killing weeds is important in farm production. Absolutely. Now, the argument that I get is, but all this crazy new stuff about how dangerous Roundup is. Okay, I am not going to say that Roundup is like milk. Well, we, we, can't, we, can't, you <laughs> we, know, we can't drink it. We shouldn't bathe in it. it Roundup is, is a pesticide and it needs to be respected. Well, hold on just a second. So I'm a little older than you. Okay. I know, I know you didn't know that. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, when Roundup was one of those chemicals that was kind of okay to use without protection. Yeah. Because we thought it was really benign and it wasn't that harmful like the other herbicides. And I think we were wrong, you know, based on some of the things. See, I don't, I don't agree. I think that Roundup is among the safest that we use, but that doesn't mean that it's safe. Well, I think you're misunderstanding me, is that it is among the safest if we're comparing. Oh, I, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't wear gloves or protective yes. you know, clothing or take precautions when using it. Sometimes when you give an inch, appliers will take a mile. Seriously, they will because it is cumbersome to protect yourself and you read the directions. Now that I now that I understand what you're saying, I agree entirely. Mm -hmm. Be you need to be safe with this compound. It is not entirely benign. Mm -hmm. I still think it's among the safest that we use. I, I, but we we treated it cavalierly. Is that is that the yes, right word? Yes, that's better in a, word in a cavalier manner. Yes. But here's the thing. I'm familiar with the other compounds that they use if they don't use Roundup. Oh, yes. And they are nasty. They are nasty. They are seriously nasty. And my problem, my issue with these arguments against Roundup-ready corn and soybean and what have you, people who, who make this argument strongly don't seem to realize what the alternatives are. They can be really devastating to the environment. One of the main ones that's used, have you ever heard of atrazine? Yes. Atrazine is a primary alternative to Roundup. I will take Roundup any day over atrazine, and the other alternatives just aren't that much better. Well, let's talk about the concern of Roundup. So, so sure. people, maybe they're not so concerned that there is a gene that is resistant to Roundup inserted into the plant that they're eating, but that the plant is being sprayed with Roundup. And so there is a low residual value of Roundup mm -hmm. that would exist on the plant. And there's going to be a time that before the plant is harvested from a Roundup application that it would be on your shelf. It, and example. it would still be, I mean, even if you waited months, you'd still be able to measure some tiny quantity of Roundup. And to that, I'll make a statement that I think that a lot more people need to pay attention to. And I'm actually going to include myself in that. And that is the dose makes the poison. Dose is vitally important to the action of any poison. And, you know, we can go back to our episode on potatoes. 
Every time you eat a potato, you are eating a poison, solanine. Eat five pounds of potatoes, possible, you're, you're definitely going to be sick, not just because you ate so many potatoes, um, but also because you ate so much solanine. But at five pounds of potatoes, that's enough to potentially kill somebody. Dose is incredibly important. So are you saying we get so little dose? Exactly. That, that, that it's simply not... What about over time? Does it build up in your system? Not at that level. Okay. Not, at, not at an important level. It's not like Once mercury. again, I don't want to claim that Roundup is perfectly safe. That would be... Anybody who says that any pesticide is perfectly well, safe. Well, and I is, and I also don't want to beat up on big business either. You know, sometimes people Monsanto win, deserves it sometimes. They do, absolutely. <laughs> but just because somebody's winning doesn't mean they're bad. You know, cuz everybody's a winner and somebody's a loser and there's a little in between in every scientific experiment outcome. I so. agree. I, I think what we should do for this discussion, and I think we've been doing it so far, uh, so I'm no fan of Monsanto, just to be perfectly honest, but I don't want to have a discussion about Monsanto no. or about Bayer AgriScience, or I want to discuss GMO and talk about the benefits and drawbacks of GMOs, and let's keep the big companies out of it. They've done some terrible things. They've also done some good things, but, but when I we think, get into that, it gets so complicated. I think, though, I only pointed that out because that's where I think the naysayering it comes in is that they want to attack the company. Then attack the company, don't, you know. Not the process. Not not the process, yeah. okay. exactly. Now, to name a couple of negative effects that we have from these Roundup-ready crops, I'll name two right off the bat that concern me. The first is the whole resistance issue again. If we apply Roundup this month, we go from plants that had no resistance to Roundup to plants that have all kinds of resistance to Roundup. Now, I've been saying that Roundup is a relatively safe herbicide, and I generally believe that. But the thing is, we've got this safe, or at least generally safe, herbicide that we want to be able to keep using because it is generally safe, right? I mean, I'd want to use this. And all of a sudden, we're making all these resistant weeds because we're applying so much Roundup. Now we're not able to use our generally safe herbicide anymore. When we still need an herbicide to kill weeds. When we still need yeah. an herbicide to kill weeds. So that's that's very frustrating because I do believe that Roundup Ready, again, it, it can do many, many good things. But if we use it this much, we're going to overuse it and its usefulness is going to be gone. And, and that's an issue. It's being overused. My second issue with it is that it is possible to make crops Roundup Ready that will then become weeds. Let me give you an example. Kentucky bluegrass. And by the way, Kentucky bluegrass is the grass in many northern yards. It is not from Kentucky. <laughs> it's from it's from Europe. It is actually uh, an introduced grass that some consider a weed. In fact, it can be considered an invasive weed in certain areas of the country. We have a Roundup Ready Kentucky bluegrass. Let me tell you something. The way that you control Kentucky bluegrass, the safest way right now is with Roundup. You make it Roundup ready, all of a sudden you've got this incredible potential weed that can spread all over the place and your safest alternative to control it will not work. And by the way, I'll have some people say, well, what about organic herbicides? Unfortunately, organic herbicides generally do not work well on Kentucky bluegrass. And the reason is because, well, they do a great show of burning the top of the grass. Within two weeks, the roots re-sprout. 
we are not at a point yet where organic herbicides can take over for Roundup in anything approaching a reasonable way. And this is actually something that I work with both hands-on and certainly a lot of book research. And we're simply not there. Someday, maybe. We're not there now. So let's talk about how GMOs are controlled. Like, how are we safe from GMOs, like from the government? So the government does have to look at genetically modified organisms at various levels. They have to look at them. If it's a pesticide, they have to look at them as a pesticide. If it's a food, they have to look at them as a food. Um, not to get into whole, all the specific agencies. If you want to, you can. It's not hard to find this information. And certain tests have to be run. These agencies don't necessarily run these tests. Generally, the company runs these tests. Or I shouldn't say the company runs the tests. The company pays for the tests to be run by independent labs. But they labs. examine them pretty thoroughly. Uh, they they so, do. Several organizations do. I mean— biologists examine it. It's not, yes, they it's not a clerk. They can't, <laughs> you know? No, it's not a clerk. Right, it, they, can't be simply, they can't be simply released. That is, that is not done. They have to be fed to various groups of organisms, and it has to be established that they reach a certain safety threshold before they're released. Now, I'm not trying to offer the listener an overly sense of security, you know, that everything's going to be fine, but I do feel good that there is this level of testing from, you know, several organizations in our government that, I mean, I was impressed you know, yeah. when I researched that by the FDA, the EPA, the USDA. I Depending mean, on the product. Yes, right. Yes, they do have to be researched. They're not just headed out there willy-nilly. Uh, again, it's not that hard to find out the different organizations that do this testing. And you're absolutely right. It is important to consider that. Of course, that's not a, not a fail-safe. No, but they tend to catch these things um, before they get out. It's not going through a custom you know, <laughs> customs and being checked off and, you know, in, in a couple of minutes and, and moving forward the chain. So there's some things that haven't even made it to the shelves, just not because it was bad, but it just hasn't been thoroughly tested enough. Exactly. You know, I know that you want to talk a little bit about acreage and some of the other issues with uh, with corn right now, but I thought that I'd mention, so we've, we've mentioned that BT and Roundup Ready are the two main issues that people are worried about right now. But I did want to name two more recent situations where we have a genetically modified plant. And one of them is one we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, the papaya, mm -hmm. where we basically wouldn't have the papaya if not for genetic modification. And the second is a really interesting one, which I'm still deciding if I think is really great or not. Have you heard of the Arctic apple? Yes. Or Arctic apples? Yes. So these are genetically modified apples. They don't produce a specific enzyme. And because they don't produce a specific enzyme, they don't brown. And it's really, really neat. At the same time, I look at this apple and I say to myself, it's a neat thing to do, but it's a necessary thing to do. And you and I talk about that in science in general. Just yeah. because we can doesn't mean we should. Right, yeah. exactly. And we, when we have so many concerns about GMOs right now, and I actually think that concerns about any new technology are good. And I support this questioning of the new technology. I think without oh, this questioning, we're not going to get to where we need to be. Oh, of course. I'm always going to question, you know, and, and do my research and listen to any uh, controversy, especially about GMOs. Exactly. And with this kind of controversy that we've got 
going on right now? Do we really want to spend our time doing something genetically modified that's neat and fun rather than actually, I won't say necessary for feeding the world, but potentially very important for feeding the world? I'm not sure about the Arctic apple. The papaya, I feel differently about. Without it, you don't have papaya. Well, you would because it, it would be susceptible to its virus, to right? To that virus, yeah. right, exactly. And it, we wouldn't have papaya. <laughs> We've got to have papaya. We've got to have papaya. <laughs> but no, I just wanted to um, enlighten our listeners <laughs> about, uh, I was impressed by how many acres were devoted to GMOs, which I shouldn't say devoted because it's not like there's a section of this production and a, and a section for GMO. It's pretty intertwined now. There is apples, corn, soybeans, a lot of dairy, cotton, you know, has the... When you say dairy, you mean the food that goes into the, into the cows, yes. not the cows themselves. Yes, there's oils, salmon, squash, yeast, you know, potatoes. I mean, there is quite a number of foods that use genetically modified organisms to produce, you know, whether they're resistant to herbicides or caterpillars or, or whatever their poison is. But just to give you an idea of how popular this is, it increased 4 million acreage from 1996 to 2016. That's why I said earlier, it's almost impossible to eat a non-GMO food. And I know there's some chains that are starting to label their food, and that has been frowned upon because that means there's a warning, you mm -hmm. know, against it. And I don't think that's fair either to, to be warned. But if we want to know, we need to know, right, that it, it's genetically you know, I modified. Like, I actually kind of like the way they're going now where they, you know, if you really want to avoid GMO foods, then you put a label on that food that says it's part of the non-GMO project. Oh, okay. And, you know, that way, That's no, a, I like that. no, the GMO I, foods don't have a marker, but if it's non-GMO, we can find out. Now, the yields, I think we should talk about. I'd like to talk about the yields. In okay. fact, I think that's very, very important. You know something? The funny thing is, in the United States, when we have a genetically modified crop, we do not tend to have better yields than with a non-genetically modified crop. And yet, when we go to a developing country, the yields tend to increase. And, and you might I love that, by the way. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And I and I know why. I know you know why too. Right. But uh <laughs> let's hang on that for a minute. That's amazing. Isn't it? That's amazing. It? It's it's actually probably more important for the developing countries. It have, is. But for us here, that same yield without the GMO isn't actually the good news it sounds like. Let me explain. The reason why our yield doesn't change is because we have the chemicals and the know-how to avoid genetically modified organisms. We can grow corn without Bacillus thuringiensis and without Roundup. Now, it's going to mean more insecticides and more different herbicides. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, from my knowledge of production, that's going to mean more dangerous poisons out there. So I don't actually think that's a good thing, but there's no doubt that by using different chemicals, we can achieve just as good a yield as with GMO. On the other hand, in the developing world, they don't necessarily have access to the same chemicals, so they are not able to produce crops without GMOs that have the same level of production. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because that is an important distinction. So then you need to ask, 
in our country, should we? That's a great question. But in developing countries, I almost like, I think, absolutely. Anything to develop more food and to prevent... To prevent starvation. Right. But here, you have to go back. Just because we can, should we? And I think that's what you need to look at in this discussion as well. And I think you're exactly right. Um, And for me, again, for many crops, it comes down to the fact that the chemicals that we use in non-GMO crops are are tougher. They're harsher chemicals. But is it worth producing a Frankenstein plant or a super weed? There you go. There's the balance. But doesn't everything have a balance? Everything does have a balance. Cindy, you raise a great question. Now, are you ready to leave GMOs? I am. Well, I'm not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you what I mean. So have you have you tried the new uh, Beyond Burger, Beyond Meat, or the Impossible Burger? No. Oh, wait. Hey, it's our sound technician here, Michael. He has tried the Impossible and Beyond Meat. I've tried them both, but Mike, tell me what you think. Tell me which ones you tried and what you think of them. When I was eating the Beyond Burger, it tastes just like a burger, almost. Like, maybe like 90% of a, of a real meat burger. Impossible Burger is okay. It was kind of beany, but the Beyond Burger, it was like, I don't know how they did it, but when you bite into it, you can see the inside of it, and it's like red a little bit. And it will fool a lot of people. Absolutely. So you it sounds like you had roughly the same impression that I had. I am not a vegetarian. I try and eat more veggies, but that said, I, I eat meat for sure. So let me let me tell you my brief impressions. I'll start with the Beyond Burger. Uh, the Beyond Burger, I've only had at home. I bought the patties. Uh, first thing I did was cook them on the grill. And on the grill, I thought they were really good. Now, don't get me wrong. It was not a great burger, but it was definitely a very the good— The Impossible Burger you're talking this, about? No, we are talking about the Beyond okay, Burger first. sorry. I did it on the grill. I thought it was a very good burger. Not great, but very good. Then I cooked it inside. Cooking the Beyond Burger inside is a mistake. It smells terribly. <laughs> <laughs> I see Michael sh- nodding his head. Okay, so it smelled awful. Um, not very the- appetizing. It so- was not. Okay. It- Outside on the grill was great. By the way, I also tried the Beyond Sausage. Okay, so I thought the Beyond Burger was very good. I thought the Beyond Sausage was good enough that it rivaled the best sausages that I've that I've had. Okay. Or that I, re- I shouldn't say that I've had, that I regularly have. The Beyond Burger I thought was really, really good. Now, the Beyond Burger, the Beyond Sausage, Beyond Meat is all part of the non-GMO project. There is no genetically modified substance in any of the Beyond Burger uh, Production. Okay. By the way, Beyond just put out some chicken nuggets that they did at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Really? In Atlanta. I, I have not tasted it. It was only at one restaurant, but I hope that they do. I really want to try and it. And I'm against uh, chicken nuggets, I hear to tell you. Well, they're kind of nasty. They are nasty. Okay. But I, so I really want to try the vegetarian ones. Again, Beyond Meat, there is no meat. The flavor is very similar to meat. I think that if you're expecting spot-on cow, you should change your expectations, but it's close. The Impossible Burger... Uh, now, Michael was saying Beyond was red. I found the Impossible Burger to be a little bit more red. Um, I've tried Impossible Burger at three different restaurants. When it first came to Charlotte, I went to this one restaurant just to get it. It was only like two or three restaurants. The restaurant was, let me just say, it was not a good restaurant. I'm not going to give you the name. And um, the Impossible Burger was fine, but it was a victim of the restaurant I had it in. Then I went to uh, another restaurant just a few weeks ago, and it's a more upscale restaurant and ordered the Impossible Burger and thought that it was very, very good. Again, the equivalent of Beyond Burger. Not a great burger, but a very good burger. 
And then about a week ago, I went and got the Impossible Whopper. And I thought that the best was the Impossible Whopper. And, and the reason is, it's that whole grill thing again. You add a little bit of that smoke, a little bit of that grilling, and that kind of enhances it. So now, do you get protein with it? Yes. In fact, in terms of how healthy these burgers are, with the exception of lower cholesterol levels, how healthy these imitation, I should say vegetarian burgers are, is very, very, very similar to what you get in red meat. It just has less cholesterol. Okay. Okay, so that's really all. The Impossible Burger, by the way, does use genetic modification. And I don't know if we should exactly say they're proud of it, but it's the way that they've found to make things work. Let me explain what they have that is genetically modified. These soybeans that are genetically modified to withstand Roundup, and they use heme which is produced with yeast. What is heme? The reason the Impossible Burger tastes as good as it does, and it is a bit more of the cow experience, is because it has heme in it, or iron. Meat tastes like meat in large part because of iron. Well, they found these heme-producing, uh, actually, bacteria in the nodules of soybeans. So instead of harvesting a bunch of soybeans and taking the nodules out, which actually would be terrible for the earth because they'd be digging up the earth. Instead, what they did was put the genes for producing this heme into yeast. The yeast produces the heme, then they ferment it, they take the heme out, and they put that into the burger. But so that's kind of awesome, don't you think? I think it is awesome. And I think that the Impossible Burger, I think that actually Beyond and Impossible are relatively similar in terms of their quality. I think that the big deal is how you cook it, but I do think that the Impossible Burger is slightly similar to to meat right from the okay. right from the cow. So that's the better one. For taste, for somebody first trying a burger, I would go out and I would try an impossible whopper. What do you think, Michael? I think I'm gonna try that again. I don't know. <laughs> the impossible whopper is definitely worth it. In fact, Michael, if you go out and try the impossible whopper, I want you to let me know what what you think. All right. So my thought for today, the product that we're looking at today is the Beyond Burgers and the Impossible Burgers, and they are definitely worth a try. Okay. I hope this discussion about GMOs has um, helped our listeners. I hope so, too. I hope it's been a fun discussion. Educate a little bit, you know, make them wonder more, feel <laughs> yes. better about it a little more, but ask more questions. That's, Absolutely. That's my goal anyway. Next week, how about we talk about coconuts? I love growing coconuts. So fun. I know. Do you remember the song, You Put the Lime in the Coconut? Yes. I just heard that the other day on the radio. It was awesome. <laughs> this has been The Plants We Eat podcast brought to you by the University of North Carolina at Charlotte Botanical Gardens and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, along with the Isle Group. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to talking at you next week. <laughs>